You're listening to the Adventure Life Science Innovation Podcast, where we showcase startup founders and innovators to learn from their entrepreneurial journeys. Hey, welcome back. My name is Alondra, and today I am very excited because we have with us the CEO and founder of Van Heron Labs, Rebecca Bott. So let me tell you, her biotech company uses genetic analysis to create a custom recipe mm -hmm. to optimize the metabolism and growth rate of a wide variety of cells. So if you were working with a particular cell or organism, Van Heron Labs can tell you what are the exact nutrients your organism requires to maximize its growth. In this episode, Rebecca talked about the struggles of being a young entrepreneur in the biotech world how to find the right team of co-founders, and how to go from proof of concept to a product that you can offer to your first customer. Enjoy. Hi, Rebecca. I feel weird with it being like um, right up close. Oh, well, it is what it is. Let me turn my light off so it's not like, is that better, slightly better? I know, light, lighting is always a struggle. I used to make fun of, um, I'm at a research institution and it's like all glass on the inside and the um, faculty offices line the atrium. And so you can just mm -hmm. see into people's offices and they all have ring lights. And I used to make fun of everybody, but now after a year of being on <laughs> I'm like, no, the ring lights are actually a great idea. I, I, I recommend that there's some really good ones at Amazon um, where you can like have your phone or like, I have, I don't have ring lights, but I have just normal like LEDs that like really, really help. Gotcha. Awesome. So are you, um, are you a student in the Houston area, I'm assuming? Yeah, I'm a student at Rice, and thank you so much for being here, first of all. Um, but I learned about you because I didn't know that you were also BioVentures alumni. Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah. BioVentures, that's how the company got started. Yes, yeah. awesome experience. I was very lucky to get into that program. Unfortunately, we never got to like pitch on the big stage at TMCX, but um, yeah, it was, it was really great for us. Um, um, so sad, but you know, here in the Vive Ventures podcast, we love to learn about entrepreneurs and founders in the life sciences area. So I'm really happy that you're here, but how, how did you find out about the Vive Ventures community in, um, in the Texas Med Center? Yeah, great question. So I did my bachelor's degree at Auburn um, in molecular cell and microbial biology. And Alex Santiago, my co-founder, and Robert Williams, um, they were doing their PhDs at UT Health, and they were involved with InVenture at the time. Um, and I thought it was just like really cool. And like, just to back up a little bit before I founded the company, I knew I was going to found the company in graduate school. So in the second year of my PhD. And so, but I didn't know any, I was like <clears throat> very academic track. Like I had no exposure to life science innovation. Just like the thought of founding a company was just so far away. Like I'm from a very <laughs> rural place in Alabama. Like the, the fact that I'm a founder now was just, I think people would look at it now and they're like, oh yeah, it makes sense. But like, At the time, I was like going to postdoc in the UK, like um, it, just hardcore research, never really thought about industry. Were you um, planning to go to the academic route that you wanted to? Yeah, well, I wasn't, I don't know if I was necessarily planning to go the academic route, but I did want to keep doing academia for a while and was thinking of postdocing. 
around the same time that I had the idea for the company and then things shifted. And then when I had the idea for the company, um, it was very clear um, that it was going to have to be a company and it couldn't be a postdoc. It really could only exist like in the commercial space. And so then it was like, okay, I have to learn business skills. I have to like figure out what's going, I have to figure out how to do this. And so luckily, like I had Alec and Robert as um, kind of like role models or they were already involved with the adventure community, like doing life science consulting and working on different projects. Um, and I actually name dropped them in order to get into Jack Gill's class in 2019. Mm -hmm. Is it 2019? Yeah, 2019. So I actually took Jack's class at like seven in the morning from Australia while I was writing up my thesis. Um, and then I chance ran into Robert again that year at the Iron Bowl. And I like kind of spilled the beans. I was like, I have this idea. I'm thinking of like starting a company. And he was like, we have this program called BioVentures. And he was like, um, I think you'd be a really great fit for it. Who's like, you need to, but the, the problem is like, you're supposed to have taken this class from Jack Gill is like the primer. I was like, I've taken it. <laughs> and so that was like the state that was like, that got me in the door. Um, I'm really for that. sorry. Why, why did you knew at the time that your idea could have only exist within the entrepreneurship, like slash company route? Why did you knew it couldn't just be a postdoc? Yeah, because so it's a pretty ubiquitous platform. So um, just to briefly explain, so we use genetic information um, basically as a tool to perform biochemical optimization for cells and organisms. So we design um, metabolically and genetically matched substrates. Mm -hmm. So instead of, you know, you are what you eat, this is like eat what you are, you know, just let the genome tell us what the organism needs for optimum function. And then when we give the <clears throat> cell or organism those substrates, um, what happens is, you know, metabolism is all of these pathways, right? You give an organism a, you know, something like a carbohydrate that gets broken down. And then from those building blocks, you have anabolism, which builds something back up, which is like a protein or um, whatever, whatever stru cellular structure. And so with our approach, what you do is you give them the exact inputs that they need for the key pathways that you're interested in. So for instance, for growth, for um, expression, you know, whatever it is that you need your cell to do better, we can give them the exact substrates that they need. So it is a very ubiquitous platform. It works for any cell, organism, tissue type. And so <clears throat> when you do a postdoc, when you're in academia, you know, the most the most model systems that I've seen labs working on is like three, right? It's crazy if they have like a plant system and a mammal system, you know, it, that's, that's a large number of model systems. And so I knew that to test the idea, we had to work on a lot of different cell types. We needed, you know, to do bacterial studies, mammalian studies, you know, and then um, in theory, this also works for plants and other things as well. So, um, you know, I thought this, this really can't, you know, we could, I could spend a lot of time and a lot of effort in the academic space, um, you know, trying to prove this in one model system, but everyone would always be skeptical, right? Like, okay, this works for Drosophila, but does it translate? And instead, um, I've just gone full bore and, and, and just doing it across a lot of systems right now. Um, and so we work with a lot of different cell types, bacteria. Um, I have a mammalian model system that I usually work on um, within the lab. And then 
you know, our, our clients are working with crazy cell types. A lot of them, you know, the cell type that they're working with, it's the only one in the world, or it's been, you know, specifically genetically modified um, for their system to produce their product. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think uh, Van Heeren Labs is just one big postdoc for me to test this overarching hypothesis. I also read that you came up with the idea while you were in a seminar during your PhD, right? And I also read, correct me if I'm wrong, but that you had so much faith in your idea that you, for some time, you were thinking about dropping out of grad school. Yeah, that's right. So I was in, so I'll give you some background as to like what led up to like the seminar idea. Um, so like I said, I did my bachelor's in molecular cell and microbial biology at Auburn. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I really loved my bachelor's degree, but I thought, so <clears throat> I guess I should um, explain. So it was mostly centered around the Auburn had two degrees. It was molecular biology and you could either pick prokaryotic or eukaryotic. And so I picked prokaryotic um, and I loved the in-classroom learning. I thought it was fascinating, but I thought the lab work was really um, archaic and I thought it didn't match up with like um, a lot of the, you know, cutting edge science that we were learning about um, in the classroom. I was just like, I don't understand how we're still like streaking plates that have animal products in there. So one of the very common media is the nutrients that cells and organisms grow on. That's the term. Um, and one of the very common media types is called sheep's blood auger. And I was just like, I can't believe that we are growing these organisms on sheep's blood. Like this is some 1940s stuff. Like, I can't believe nothing better than this exists. And there are better culture medias that like that out there. But in, at the time, my idea was like, I don't want to spend, you know, a, a PhD is like six years of your life. It's a mini marriage, right? I don't want to spend all this time working in this model system um, that's being cultivated on, you know, this very archaic substrate. You know, I almost thought at the time, all of your results are going to be biased because your organisms are going to be in this state of stress. You're never going to be looking at them under the appropriate physiological conditions because they're always going to be, um, you know, on, on, in, in conditions that are, that are stressing them out. Um, and there is a little bit of truth to that. So like, if you look at an E. coli cell growing in the lab, you know, if you Google E. coli, what, what you see is like, you know, this nice bacillus shape, mm-hmm. uh, nice physiology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what they're supposed to look like. But if you look at them under the microscope in the lab at virtually any point in time, they're in more of a caucus. So like a round shape, um, which means that they're stressed out. And one of the reasons for that could be the, the nutrients that they're, they're growing on. So the conditions. Um, and so I was like, well, I don't want to do a, a PhD if, if, um, the methods are, are so antiquated. And so kind of had that in my mind. And then also was getting interested in mitochondria at that time and had an opportunity to go overseas, um, and work on mitochondrial genetics and, um, implications for, uh, mitochondrial genetics. And, um, at the first two years of my PhD were focused on aging and lifespan and, um, what the evolution of the mitochondria means for how long you live. And in working within that space, um, you know, the genetics conversation is, is incredibly huge. And then, um, what's, what also became apparent is that nutrition is really important for how long you live. 
So at that time, there were a lot of studies coming out showing, you know, your grandparents' diet can affect your lifespan hugely, you know, these. Oh, I do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, there's, there's, um, you should, you should Google this. It's really fascinating, but, um, there's a lot of evidence showing that, um, you know, uh, folks that are alive now, if their grandparents went through something like a famine, um, or experienced some sort of fluctuation in a normal, um, you know, diet, if they're restricted in some way that that can actually affect their, uh, ancestors lifespan. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I thought that was absolutely fascinating. I'm like, yeah, the genetics are important, but all that can just go out the window if you just change what you're eating. Um, and I, I, you know, have always been really interested in, um, metabolism and biochemistry and, and physiology and, you know, started to think about like energetics and, and nutrients and, there was just a lot of intense uh, research coming out of the Asia Pacific region um, in that space. And so I was sitting in a lecture um, and kind of the idea is that you could harness genetic information um, in order to optimize cellular outcomes. And so I thought that that premise was just really, really fascinating. Um, And my immediate idea after that um, was how you could make it 10x better and that the place where that technology would be the most valuable would be for microorganisms. And so that was the original idea behind VHL is that you could use genetic information to enhance um, how microorganisms grow and produce products and things like that. And then once we got into it, what I realized is it's not just microbiology that's really stuck in the 1950s. It's any setting that is utilizing a cell type. So um, within the mammalian cell culture space, I didn't have any exposure at the time, but a lot of folks are still using, you know, the traditional media formulations are, they were created, you know, in the fifties and sixties, folks are still using animal products. So the big one is uh, called serum or a fetal bovine serum. So it is literally a cow abortion. Um, that they then take the blood serum. Yeah. I saw your face just go like, Oh yeah, it's so gross. And everyone uses it. Um, and they, they take the serum from those, um, fetal calves and, uh, filter it. And then you use it as an additive within the media. And it's full of, you know, obviously nutrients and growth factors. I've used it before, but I didn't know what it was. Yeah. Yeah. It is literally like a cow, um, abortion. You can buy some less gnarly versions that are, it's, it's not fetal. So it's just from a, it's from an adult animal, Mm kind of like the sheep's blood um, situation, but it's all pretty, pretty bad. Um, And so the, the industry is very, very antiquated and and it's a little bit scary because, um, you know, these media formulations that folks are using, these are being used to create therapeutics. They're being used for um, cell and, and tissue culture, stem cell research, um, not everyone is using serum in those spaces, I should, I should say, but um, traditionally uh, media formulations have existed with like the um, same 40 or 50 ingredients. Um, and what a lot of the large manufacturers are doing is just looking at those in different combinations and seeing how the cells respond. Um, and we take a, a very um, uh, different approach to that and just let the cells tell us what, what, what they need. Um, and so what we end up with are a lot of, um, very novel ingredients that are in there and then more, uh, nutrient efficiency in, in, in our formulations. Um, and now I've been rambling and I don't even remember your original question. So had idea graduate school, 
um, lecture. How is it that you were able to complete your degree after? Right. I thought about that. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. And, and so when I had the idea, um, that day, I, I did think that it was so fascinating or such a huge need, um, that I did consider dropping out. Um, I'm glad that now that I did not do that. And I, I finished up, I loved my PhD, but I thought, um, and still think the technology behind VHL is groundbreaking and can deliver, uh, impact in so many different areas, um, for humans, for the planet. Um, it's just hugely important. And so I'm very lucky that I get to shepherd the technology into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did, you know, when, when graduate school gets hard and things are not going well and you're working like those long hours, you know, I just, I did have it in the back of my mind, like, oh, I could just pursue that idea. <laughs> um, and it would be, you know, I thought it would be easier, but the reality is that, um, there's a lot of advantages to having the the PhD letters behind your name, particularly when you're trying to um, sell yourself as a scientist and the fact that you've figured out some um, groundbreaking technology, it helps when you have the the clout to back it up. So um, I'm very glad that I, that I did finish my degree, but yeah, the idea behind BHL, I had it when I was um, 23. So my second year in graduate school and then didn't pursue it until I graduated and then um, founded BHL when I was 26. So, um, yeah, I've been, been thinking about this for quite some time now. So you completed your degree and then you came to the Texas Medical Center and then you started by Ventures. What was the type of feedback that you got at the time? Was Upendra there? Yes, Upendra was there. Um, <laughs> he was really hard on us. Um, we loved the BioVentures experience. So it was so valuable because I was from that academic background. And that's how you... The, the style of BioVentures, for folks that don't know, um, it's, it's, it's pitching, right? So every week you get up there and you pitch your idea, and it's almost like a thesis defense but for your business. Um, and they break down your idea and they give you critical feedback. And through that, you build your company and you become a better entrepreneur because you expand your vocabulary and you learn how to do market research very quickly. Um, and from, for somebody like me who is from an academic background, that was so much more valuable than like sitting in a classroom setting because it, you respond, um, you know, that's how we move things forward in academia is like you present at a seminar or you present your work, you get critiques and then you assess and redefine. Um, and through that, you try to get to a result or you try to get to the truth. Um, and so I actually responded, I think very well to being in that environment where you're pitching and then getting critical feedback and then, um, you know, reassessing and then building something up the next week. And like that iterative process, um, really helped me refine the idea and then get up to speed on a lot of, um, you know, core business concepts that I had no idea. You know, I remember folks saying things in the beginning. I just, I like looked at them with like this blank face, like, I don't know what an MVP is. I don't know, like, uh, annual revenue. Like, I, I don't know any of these terms. And so I would just like shake my head and then go home and do like a bunch of Googling. Um, and the inventor community is so great because, you know, it's, it's amazing um, scientists and med students and folks that are, um, you know, pursuing degrees in the life science space, but also have had this exposure to business that is so um, valuable. And so being immersed in that, um, in that, uh, setting was super valuable for us. But yeah, so the feedback was interesting in BioVentures because I did not have any evidence for the idea yet. So it was still an idea. Um, and everyone else that was in the cohort, you know, they've got 
years of data, um, or they've been doing this for quite some time. And so I, I ran in the accelerator until Alec um, joined me. And then we're, you know, we're just pitching the idea. We're like, we think this will work. We think this is how it's going to work. Um, and so a lot of the feedback was around like, okay, great, but you, you've got to prove this or, um, you know, and it's uh, coming up with a, a, a business model or a revenue model um, for something that's, that's ultimately a process optimization is really difficult. It's one thing when you have a medical device or you have a therapeutic, you know, you have a physical product that you sell um, at the end of the day, you know, there's more involved in that with, you know, insurance and, and that sort of thing. But um, it's easier the, to the, imagine, you know, quantifying the, the business model. With that's right. So for us, it's all, um, it's not necessarily subjective, but it, it, it is very different. Um, and so coming up with a way to monetize um, and come up with something that makes sense for um, something that is, it's kind of both a service and a product. So the way that we work with our customers is um, you know, they pay us an upfront fee for us to do the R&D or the development to come up with their formulation. Um, and then we license that formula once it goes through a trial period to them. Um, so it's kind of a two-part model. That, but it took us a long time to, to come up with that and, and think about how it would work. Um, you know, and we, we went back and forth on should we be selling the nutrients? Should we not be selling them? Um, and, you know, our, our products are really custom for a particular clients, you know, are, um, depending on what they need, the project could be more or less, you know, the, the milestones could be very different. Um, they may need three formulations. They may need one. They may need, <clears throat> they, um, um, there's, you know, different, different aspects of, of what we do. A lot of experimental design goes into it because it is custom work. So, um, trying to, you know, for someone who's coming into business for the first time and then having this very interesting um, business model that you're trying to create was, um, you know, a, a challenge for me. Um, and it did take us a long time to kind of like figure it out. But now I think our customers are actually really happy with the way that we've, we've structured this. Um, you know, sometimes we get a little bit of pushback in the beginning, but I think once they see um, how things are actually going to work for them, I think they've come around um, and see that it is actually the best way um, to, to enhance their systems. What is it that it took the first customer to say, okay, I, 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 need, I want you to develop, you know, an optimized product for my, for my animal or for my cells? Wait, sorry, say that again? What took the first customer to believe in your product or that you show him first a catalog of like, hey, this, is, this works, this is what we can do for you? Yeah, good question. So um, in the early, so we ran in BioVentures until um, COVID shut down uh, the program. Um, basically, the whole Texas Medical Center shut down. It was very scary at that time. Um, and so what we did was once BioVentures shut down, we actually, uh, well, we were in the process before it shut down of building out a home lab. Um, so I inherited a lot of lab equipment from the person that the company is named after, uh, James Heron and his family. And I drove that equipment back to Texas and we built a home lab in Alex's house. Um, and so the first thing that we, we thought, you know, of course, we're in the middle of this pandemic was how can we help with COVID-19 vaccine production? Um, and so there's a few different ways that you can actually help out with that. Uh, you know, the vaccine components are being produced by cells at the end of the day. And so something like, uh, you know, uh, imagine you can get 40% more vaccine particles 
um, from the same amount of infrastructure and all it's going to take is, is a media change. Uh, you know, that's incredibly powerful, especially when you have an entire population who needs to get a shot in their arms. And so we started reaching out to COVID vaccine manufacturers. And the one that actually uh, emailed us back was they were a plant-based um, company. And so they were actually making plant-based vaccines. Um, and so we did an initial pilot for them, just trying to enhance growth of their of their bacterial system. Um, so they, they actually use bacteria to transfect the plants. Um, and so we presented those results to them. We actually increased uh, their growth by 93% in the home. Wow. Um, and then, so I presented those results to them and they were like, you know, this is great, but what we really need is we need to get these undefined components out of our, our media. So a lot of folks that are working with bacteria, mm-hmm. you have things like yeast extract that is within the media formulation and it's, it's undefined. So it's there, you have batch to batch variability. And so I created a 95% um, chemically defined media for them that was that retained performance um, and presented those results to them. And they were like, yeah, this is great. Um, but we actually were such a small company. We don't have the ability to do the comparative studies, which is where you take the um, old part of your bioprocess and the new part of your bioprocess and produce um, a molecule uh, in both a, um, treatment and a control state. And then you compare those molecules and show that they're the same and then present that to the FDA in a, in a change notice. So, uh, we were like, well, this stinks, you know, I guess we're not going to, they were basically like catch you next pandemic. Um, and so we were like, well, this stinks, but then, you know, we had all this great data that we could actually present to companies in a practical sense. Um, and one of the companies that, uh, got back to me, they were in, um, they were at Hudson Alpha, and so that's how we we ended up at at uh, the research institution that we're off now. So the first thing that got someone to take a look at us was the was was the pandemic, and then now our current customers they're actually in the um, alternative protein space. So they have a very unique cell type, um, and they want to increase their um, ability to grow and scale up that cell type so that it can be used for human consumption. Um, and so we are going to be designing or we're, we're currently working on designing a, uh, mm-hmm. a nutritional supplement for them that will um, help them hopefully make a lab grown meat product. When you say unique cell type, you mean like a new cell type that hasn't been identified yet, that it's just like newly discovered? Um, so for them, it's a it's a new cell type. Um, I can't say too much about it, but um, that they're it, working with. Sorry. A new cell type that they're working with. Yeah, so it's not commercially available. It's one that they've actually isolated themselves um, from an animal, uh, and then they have kind of a um, model system set up to study it and then scale it up for commercial production. And do you think since it's a new cell type that they're working with, since they don't have the previous, you know, background of, you know, feeding this new cells with this uh, with this old cell culture from the fifties, from the fifties, do you think those types of customers are open to your product? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I guess I should I should qualify. So not all media formulations are from the nineteen fifties, but a lot of the common ingredients are from that time period. Um, and um, so the the way the reason why that's problematic is because you know you have these ingredients that somebody 
you know, back in the 1950s said these are important and they are important. A lot of them are still being used in our formulations. Um, but there's a lot of novel macro and micronutrients that are actually, well, they're not novel. They're novel because I put them in there, but they are required for uh, eukaryotes. They're required for bacteria and they're not included within some of those older traditional media formulations because we didn't know, we literally didn't have the science you know, we didn't have a genome sequence back in the 1950s. We didn't know that those things were important. Um, and so they're not within some of those traditional um, media formulations. So uh, this particular company is using a pharmaceutical grade media. There are pharmaceutical grade medias that um, are specific to particular cell types. Um, and in fact, there's a huge business around this, right? Um, and so folks are putting a lot of effort into creating um, better media formulations, but a lot of those costs you know, a, a ridiculous amount of money. So somewhere between a hundred and $500 um, a liter, um, a lot closer to the, the $500 a liter price point is what they're currently using now. So if you want to make a, um, if you want to make a food product, you know, and you want to sell it at food prices, you can't be using something that is that expensive. And so what we're trying to do for them is get them, uh, we're trying to vastly lower their costs um, and if we can vastly lower their costs and also increase cellular growth at the same time, um, you know, that would be a huge result. And that is the premise behind the project. And so I think folks that are in, um, in that boat are, are particularly interested in, in working with us. Um, and we have been championed hugely by the alternative protein community because the needs are so astronomical there. Um, you know, these proprietary media formulations um, from these pharmaceutical manufacturers, um, you know, they, they work, but they're completely unsustainable for, you know, these guys need to be in like 10,000 liter bioreactors at some point. We can't imagine, you know, 10,000 multiply 10,000 by uh, $500 a liter. It's just, it's mm -hmm. just not going to work. Um, and so they have got to lower their prices and then also um, make sure that those cells grow and proliferate at a, at a, an optimal rate. Pretty substantial rate. Yeah, that's right. More so over something like um, need, um, they need to reach a certain scale, which is, you know, a, a benchtop bioreactor or a little bit larger than that to produce, um, you know, a lot of therapeutic. Making something like a food product is, is very, very different. So you need a massive process. Um, and so the needs there are, are pretty overwhelming. And so those companies have have championed us a lot. Um, and that is, that's basically how we've gotten the, the company off the ground up until this point is, is alternative protein. Um, and then I think if you had to look at the rest of our, our sales pipeline, the other companies that are interested in working with us um, are other small pharmaceutical companies. So folks that are making um, biologics in some capacity, um, also folks who are doing precision fermentation. So that just means recombinant expression. Um, so like, for instance, let's say you have a yeast product, uh, a yeast process that is producing some sort of um, high value uh, protein product. Um, those guys have been really interested in working with us. Um, and then the, the rest of our clients are, are alternative proteins. So um, it's a lot of fun, get to work on a lot of uh, different things, just how I, I thought that things would play out back when I had this idea back in 2017. Now, the value proposition that you're offering, the fact that you can increase the production rate um, for the cell media and 
that you can lower the cost compared to what is already out there in the market was was that something that you knew or originally or that it took you time to develop as as more customers were coming in yeah i i think um so we always knew that we could increase yield pretty much no matter what biological system that you're working in uh but we didn't know much about the uh, market as far as, uh, what is the standard now? Um, and what are the needs and what are the challenges? Um, and is this actually a big enough problem that it's holding back research programs that it's holding back therapeutic programs? Um, and the reality is, is that it is, um, but we didn't realize how intensely folks, you know, the needs are different depending on what industry you're in. So in the alternative protein space, the biggest needs are, get rid of animal products, increase cellular growth, and then reduce the costs. Um, if you are in um, the therapeutic space, the, the needs are a bit different. Um, and the good thing about our platform is that it can be customized to whatever folks need. Um, we've had people approach us with very, um, you know, they've taken a look at the website, they've uh, thought about their system, and, and they've approached us with like very interesting challenges. Like we need to increase attachment or um, we need to create a better microenvironment for a tumor cell, which is, you know, something that we didn't envision the technology for, but it certainly can be used for. So I think, um, as you said, that has definitely um, evolved over time and it's, it has taken us time to figure out um, exactly what our value propositions are in, in each space and how we can actually be helpful um, and I think new use cases and, and, and new things reveal themselves to us all the time. Um, my co-founder Alec and I were talking about uh, phage therapy yesterday and how um, the technology could actually be used to, to help with that as well. So um, it has certainly been an evolution, yes. <laughs> and that, that I've noticed that you've mentioned your co-founder Alec multiple times. I remember when I was in my ventures, I think that like this struck me the most is learning that investors sometimes aren't that interested in your solution they're more interested in, they're more interested in the team and who's actually behind that idea so that if it doesn't work or if there's a problem you can pivot it right so at the end it's 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 a it's a people thing so what was the role that you and your co-founder and i believe you said you had a third co-founder at the time what was the role that each one of you were playing yeah so in the early days you know i had i obviously had all the the technical um knowledge um, and was trying to build out the scientific concept and, and, and look and see, you know, how can this be a business? And then Alec, you know, he, so his, his degree is very focused on um, biochemistry and molecular biology. So he brings that background. And also he had all of the business skills because he uh, had been an inventor for so long. Like he knew about branding and market analysis and like just how to get organized and like, uh, you know, had, had a network and, um, new people and, uh, just all these things that I didn't have. So he brought that to the table as well. And then, yes, so we have a third co-founder named Nithin. Um, Nithin's really interesting. So he was in high school at the time he would started out as an intern at VHL. We had a lot of interns within the Texas medical center, um, or affiliated with the Texas medical center, helping us, um, and he, yeah, was in high school, started out as an intern, given a very small amount of information, actually figured out the same idea behind VHL. Like I didn't tell him what it was. I just, you know, explained pretty much what I've explained to you today. And, and he was like, 
you know, I think we can actually be doing this. And I was like, yeah, Nathan, that, that is the idea. Um, and then he was like, I think we can make this better for um, uh, recombinant expression X, Y, and Z. And so he actually ended up um, as an author on our first provisional patent. And um, so he actually engineered our biocomputing pipeline for the first time. So he had a lot of uh, Python experience, even though he was still, um, he was 17 at the time, but, um, yeah, so he engineered the pipeline for the first time and that's how we were able to conduct the studies within the home lab is we could actually get some publicly available genetic data and run it through Nathan's pipeline. And that's how the company got started. That's how we got our first data. So that was kind of what everyone was bringing to the table in the early days um, and now the roles have been structured thus. Um, Nithin is way too busy with his degree at MIT. He comes on every now and then um, and will help us out with some of the biocomputing projects. Luckily, the, the pipeline is pretty much engineered at this point. Um, and Alec is, is my right hand. Um, so he helps me out with a lot of things, business and, and on the science side. Um, just, just helps me take care of you know, stuff on the, the to-do list and also um, outstanding projects that we have going on. And then, um, I run both the business and the, the science side, um, and liaise pretty closely. So we have, we have two advisors that we work with, um, one of them also from the adventure universe. So, uh, Dr. Kadar Kakari, he, he and I pretty much talk on a, a weekly basis. He's very involved with VHL. Um, and then we have another strategic advisor, um, in the Houston area who we work with very closely. And then, um, have a ton of other very lucky um, other mentors and advisors. They probably don't even know that I consider them a mentor and advisor, but I pick their brains all the time about um, uh, just just various things. Um, and so um, we've been we've been very lucky. Um, but I think if you looked at our team, I think we do have the the best team. Um, but investors have been very wary of us because you know we're young. Um, they're still students, you know, um, I'm a very young, uh, CEO, we, and our advisors are very young. So even, um, Kadar and James, uh, they're, they're, I think they're both still 28 or 29. Um, so, and, you know, if you look up some of these other, uh, female led biotech or bioplatform companies, you know, their, their teams are just stacked, right. With like, the head of tissue engineering at Harvard and George Church and um, so-and-so who's the VP of Sanofi and, and, you know, they've just got this really stacked deck and we haven't necessarily, um, we haven't necessarily done that. And I think there's a few different reasons why I'm, I'm very selective about kind of who I, I let into the team. Um, I, I, I have always, um, I guess, leaned more on the side of um, interest and values rather than um, your education or background. Um, not that I think our team is totally suited to do everything and, and execute on an extremely high level, but I think folks are wary of us because we do break the mold a little bit um, because we don't have the VP of Sanofi who has 35 years of industry experience working with us. Um, it's not that I haven't had those conversations with those guys. I've just never, um, there's this, uh, uh, thing that's been going around LinkedIn for the past few weeks. If it's not a heck yes, then it's a heck no. Um, and so I think I've actually spent the last two years trying to find who I can put on my team. That's a heck yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you looked at my team now, it, 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 it certainly is those individuals. And, 
Um, so I have been really selective in that way. Um, but yeah, to get back to your point, yeah, you know, investors are, are wary of this and it's something that we're aware of that we, um, you know, probably are being discriminated against in some way because we don't have, you know, a bunch of, um, uh, we don't have um, folks that have those 35 years of ind- industry experience on the, the core team or the mentor team. But, um, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, you know, maybe those folks will come uh, one day. And I do liaise with folks who do fit that bill, um, but they're, they're more in, in minor mentorship roles rather than um, necessarily being um, board seats. So we'll, we'll eventually fill that out. But um, yeah, it'll just, it'll just take some time to find find those champions that um, I think align with, with interest and in, in values for VHL. It's interesting how there's in the business world also these rigid structures where especially in the biotech companies, they want to see a staple, like you said, of someone with 35 years of experience, you know, regardless of, you know, how capable the team is and how much they prove over and over that their product works. Yep, that's right. And I think it's unfortunate because, um, you know, the structure of a scientific revolution or an industrial revolution is outside perspective. You know, it's, it's an outsider coming in who has experience in a different area and seeing a problem and looking at it in a very different way. Um, not to say that those folks with industry experience are, are not coming in and, and, and can't add value to the team. Um, but I think if you just even looked at my background, you know, it's a, it's a lot of evolutionary genetics um, a lot of microbiology. And then I came in and I'm now doing a lot of mammalian and, and tissue culture and working on a lot of things that I had no experience in. And I think it's an unbelievable asset because I bring ideas from those other industries or those other, um, you know, scientific disciplines and apply them um, in a very different way. Uh, and I think it's incredibly valuable. Um, you know, it, it, it's going to move science forward. It's going to move our clients forward, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I think it is unfortunate that we do have that bias um, towards, you know, you needing these exact credentials in order to add value in a very specific way. Um, you know, it's a trade-off because sometimes because I wasn't, I didn't have the, uh, the formal training, you know, sometimes there's key bits of information that I'm missing. Um, and, and that's the trade-off. You may not know something, you may miss something fundamental if you don't have that experience, but um, I think that's in the minority of cases and um, what ends up being the bigger advantage is, is having that outside perspective. Um, and I think eventually we'll, we'll realize that there's no reason why the 17 year old can't make the best biocomputing platform on, on, on earth, or there's no reason that the 26 year old can't lead, um, you know, a, an incredibly powerful bio platform into a commercial reality. But um, yeah, there are those biases in, in business that, that exist. Um, and you just try not to, not to be discouraged by it. I mean, um, in running uh, a startup company, you're going to hear a thousand no's, right? But those, those few people that say yes to you, you almost, you start to feel grateful for the no's after a while, you know, in the early days it is, um, it is discouraging because it's, there's a lot of bad news that happens when you're, when you're a, a tiny startup, you know, you're trying to build this house in a hurricane. Every time you get a board up, it just keeps getting blown over again. And so getting those no's is like particularly, um, hurtful. Um, but now I think I'm, I'm glad for that because those yeses, um, you know, that's the stuff that's really going to move your company forward. And that's how you find your, your champions and the people that you do, um, end up liaising closely with, um, 
and, and, and build a great company, whether or not that person has the, the quote unquote, um, experience necessary. What do you think was that gave you the confidence to keep pursuing your ideas as you were like in grad school up until you were, um, graduating from, from BioVentures and <laughs> making your MVP? Yeah, I just, um, I'm just obsessed with this technology. I think, um, you know, I think there's a, if it wasn't, if I didn't personally think that this was the most important technology on, on earth, there's a lot of chance. There's a lot of, there's a big possibility that I may not have kept going at some of those stages. Um, but just the technology is so important, right? Uh, you know, the, the next 30 years are going to be defined by biologically based substances and biologically based technologies. And the reality is that if we don't have better foundations um, or better ways to grow um, and scale up those biosystems, um, it's, it's going to be bad for, for humanity. So this is a technology that we really need so that we can get those next generation therapeutics so that we can have alternative protein. Um, and so I just think that, yeah, the technology is just, it, it's too important not to keep pursuing. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's what gets me out of bed um, every day. And then, you know, as I said, almost on a daily basis, there are new use cases for the technology or new ways that we can help people. I mean, if you think of the, if you think of the whole scope of the sectors that um, BHL can help with, it's, you know, it's agriculture, it's bioremediation, it's biopharma, um, it's stem cell culture, it's it, it, literally any process that uses an organism, we can help them um, and potentially um, make huge impacts. So what we're hoping is that our technology can help biological innovations reach the public um, faster, better, and cheaper. Uh, and that idea is, is, is what's really driven me is that you can, you know, um, provide a lot of impact for humanity, um, positive impacts for the planet. Um, you know, all that big picture stuff is very top of mind um, whenever there is a setback or whenever things do get hard. Um, and I, I was having a conversation with a mentor um, a couple of weeks ago. And even if I had unlimited money right now, right? Like imagine somebody just gave me a hundred million dollars tomorrow, I would still be working on this. Um, like I would still be pursuing this idea. It's not that I'm um, trying to like get rich or I have some sort of vendetta of being like a CEO. Um, no, it's very much, it's always been about um, the technology and, and the platform and, and the, the capabilities and, and what it can do. And I'm really just kind of see myself as being like the shepherd, you know, bringing it into the world. Um, and I don't know if I'm, I'm necessarily the one who's best suited for that job, but I am definitely the one who sees the potential and the technology the most. Um, and so I'll keep doing it until, until I can't. Um, like you said, it is too important to not. To it's not too important it. to not do it. Yep. That's exactly right. What are some of the challenges that you think you are going to find um, in the future? Yeah, I think scaling is going to be a big challenge for us. That is something that we're pretty focused on right now. So we've had one client in 2021. And then just now we have eight clients that are within our sales pipeline. And it's not even the end of the year yet. You know, we still have a month to go. Um, so I'm excited, but also worried about having something like 10 clients next year. Um, you know, that's exponential growth. And that's a lot for a company that only has one full-time employee. 
Um, and so it's we nice have problem to have, but it's still a problem, but it's a big, yeah. Cause, cause what we don't want to happen is that we engage with these clients. Um, and then we're not able to deliver because we can't give projects the attention that they deserve. Mm-hmm. You know, as I said, our clients are really trying to bring a huge amount of value into the world. And so what we don't want to do is, you know, they pay for us and we end up being a burden rather than being, um, rather than being, you know, that competitive advantage or that, um, huge win that is going to get them to the next level. Um, and so we want to have everything. We want to be able to deliver value consistently for a larger number of clients. Um, and being able to do that is, is no small task. Um, and so right now that's where a lot of our intense focus is, you know, I'd say number one, it's, uh, trying to deliver great value for our current clients. So I spend a lot of time working on that each day. And then I'm trying to keep an eye towards the future so that we can do this at a higher rate. Um, next year and trying to figure out, you know, how do we take on a larger, uh, a larger swath of clients without the wheels falling off and, um, still be able to deliver great results for everyone. So, um, that is our first and and foremost challenge right now. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at increasing either the amount of employees or the amount of equipment or both in order to meet the, the requirements of the client. Yeah, so um, obviously with more personnel, um, it would be very helpful. Uh, You know, it'd be great if I um, had somebody that was dedicated in the lab that can help me um, with some of the R&D projects, but also um, it would be great if I had somebody that was um, full-time kind of on the operations side who can kind of like organize and um, keep me on task so that I can just go in and do the parts um, that require um, me. So I think they call this uh, founder independence or founder dependence. So, um, trying to take me out of the equation because there's no way that I can, you know, a lot of it is falling on me right now. There's no way that I can do everything for, um, something like 10 clients next year. So, uh, we have to figure out how to kind of almost get our operational pipeline automated. You know, this goes there, that goes here, you know, and, and just trying to figure out, um, how do we really streamline this and, um, make it to where, you know, it's a smooth, smooth running machine. That is, I think one of the hardest things that I've been trying to learn, how do you get people on your team that you can trust and that also care about the same goal? Yeah, I think um, that's, that's a huge challenge, right? Um, I think one of the things is you have to be selective about who comes on and just have a lot of conversations, like the conversation that we're having now, um, and figure out, you know, initial, just from, you know, gut reaction and from, uh, you know, initial conversations where, where are the interests and the values? And then I think you have to sell that broader vision so that folks are, you know, they're working on things, not because you told them to, but because they're also interested and they think that the work is very important. Um, you know, if you tell someone to do something, they'll probably get it done, but it may, you know, it's, it's probably not going to necessarily be the same way that you would have done it. And it, 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 it's going to look like it was an assignment, but if you, if people buy into the fact that, um, you know, this can make a huge impact for humanity, this can make a huge impact for the planet. Um, we can do a lot of really cool science. We can do a lot of really cool things. Then folks are going to, they'll finish the project on their own of their own volition in the way that they want to. And that's how you get the, the, the biggest value is when folks are like, I thought this was interesting. I have made, I have created this new thing. It is going to help us in this way. 
Um, and so that is a very um, delicate balance. Um, and I think it does just take, you know, working with people. It's unfortunate that, you know, an interview process, you talk to somebody for an hour and you ask them questions and um, there's almost no way to, to figure that out. Um, one of the ways that we've been kind of um, trying to do this is, is uh, with a lot of internships. So I had a lot of interns that were working with me. Um, originally in the, the TMC when we first got the company off the ground. And now I also have a large number that are working with me now. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that I hope and one of the things that they hope are that they will become employees one day. Um, at least those who, who really are interested in what we're doing and enjoy um, being in the lab and, and, and um, well, they're not always in the lab, uh, enjoy doing, you know, uh, the tasks that, um, that are specific to them and their skill set and then come on as, as full-time employees. So that gives us a chance to work together um, for a while and see if, you know, it's a good fit before something more permanent um, actually comes with that. But yeah, you're right. It is, it is definitely a huge challenge. One last question. I was really curious when you were mentioning your, um, your home lab, how, what did your MVP look like when you first made it? Yeah, it was, um, it was pretty wild. So, um, for the, so we started out doing bacterial work in the beginning. So that's pretty easy to do in a home laboratory. You can actually, you know, Louis Pasteur didn't have a fume hood or, or a biological safety cabinet. You know, he had, they had to do everything out on the bench top. So if you know the appropriate techniques, you can actually get pretty far working with bacteria. Um, and so that's what we did. And at the time I couldn't afford the pharmaceutical grade ingredients. So I was just going around getting ingredients from Walmart, from the nutrition store, um, ordering stuff from Amazon, um, and just kind of putting it all together. Um, but yeah, our, our MVP looks very similar. Like if you actually had to look at one of our formulations from back then, and one of our formulations from now, like, yes, what I'm doing now is much more sophisticated. We have better raw materials. Um, there's, there's a little bit, I'm using the more expensive versions of things. Um, but the fundamental technology has not changed. Um, and even if you go back and look at some of our old decks um, from BioVentures, the, you know, the things that we predicted before we even had any supporting data, you know, it's very, it's actually very similar to what it is now. Like, of course, we refined um, and we know things now that we didn't know back then, but yeah, the fundamentals have not changed even since the, the home lab. So, um, what we created for that pharmaceutical company was, you know, a supplement to enhance growth and lower costs. And now with these first clients in the alternative protein space, I've created for them a supplement that will enhance growth and lower costs and get those undefined components out of the media that they're using. And so. Um, it has been really interesting to see, like, you know, the, the thing that I imagine uh, way back in the day has now um, come to fruition. And, and yeah, a ton of things have changed. But at the same time, um, it's still the same fundamental concept. Now that you bring that up, how was how has been the approach to clients? Uh, do you think that having one client, you know, creates, you know, word of mouth and that sort of like the word gets a spread and like more people know about your product? Yeah, I think so. I don't necessarily think it's uh, the client's word of mouth, but I think um, just going forward with conversations like this and folks realizing that we are post-revenue now, um, it, you present in people's minds, it's very different because when you're pre-revenue, everyone is very cautious. They're like, oh, is there something like wrong with them? You know, why hasn't somebody paid them yet? 
And then um, all of a sudden, when you have that first customer, then folks are like, oh, well, other people have paid for this, so we should pay for it. Um, I think it's the same, like with companies that are fundraising, you know, getting that first investor, that that person that's going to lead your first round, um, you know, is so difficult and so hard. But then once you have them, then it's like, then everyone's like, oh, okay, we're on board. And then it's like overnight, you've, you've, you've assembled your investor team. And I think it's, it's been very similar for us. Yeah. So once we um, got the first clients, I think um, it then positioned us differently in, in folks' minds um, where, you know, they're willing to pay for this, their, their revenue model seems to be um, valuable and it seems to be the best way to um, realize the technology and then, yeah, I think folks are folks are more interested in in working with us. So, um, yeah, I think think spot on. You definitely nailed it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Um, I think it's ten now, so our time is on. But thank you so much for being here. I personally learned a lot about uh, BHL, and looking forward to see you in the med center if you're around. Yeah, it sounds great. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. Bye bye.